you know, you meet those people all the time that still haven't figured out how to be wrong and they just can't be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. And I learned recently after I went through some like semi-traumatic situation in my love life that when I, if I'm open to being flawed, then I'm open to, to fixing myself and progressing forward, which I like more than the pride associated with being correct. What's up, guys? I'm Zach, your host of the Auxoro Podcast, where we bring you face-to-face with music artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, doctors, designers, and other interesting humans in a show that dives deep into the story beyond the surface. You can now support Auxoro with a donation on Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. We're a completely independent platform with no outside sponsors or investors. And we're grateful for any amount, no matter how small, to help push the conversation forward. If you'd like to support, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Auxoro, link in the podcast description as well. On Patreon, you get early access to episodes, discounts on merchandise, and other Patreon-exclusive content. Thank you for your support. If you love keeping up with Auxoro, we have a newsletter sent out twice a month with all of our latest content, as well as other articles, podcasts, books, and advice that we find helpful. I'm constantly scrounging the internet for things to improve my life. And I would love nothing more than to be able to share the things that have helped me with you. Go to auxoro.com and join over a thousand others by subscribing to the newsletter. The link is also in the podcast description. This episode is brought to you by The Aux. The Aux is a short form podcast produced by Auxoro, bringing you a daily dose of uncensored wisdom to jumpstart your life. 10 minutes or less, no bullshit, no topic off limits. We explore topics like fashion, porn, relationships, meditation, and more. You can subscribe to this podcast by searching The Aux, A-U-X, wherever you listen to podcasts. Today on Auxoro, I sit down with Ryan Meyer, the drummer and backing vocalist of the band Highly Suspect. The Cape Cod-based band Highly Suspect has been nominated for two Grammys, worked with legendary producers like Joel Hamilton, and just released their latest album in the fall of 2019 called MCID, which stands for My Crew Is Dope. The hip-hop-infused album contains features from Young Thug, T Grizzly, and Nothing But Thieves, just to name a few. In this episode, Ryan and I discuss making music in Colombia, the psychological breakdown of narcissism, going through breakups, the give and take of social media, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Ryan Meyer of Highly Suspect. This technology is great because I talk to people all over the world, but sometimes it can be a headache. So I try to remind myself to be grateful for the good connections. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, man, that's the right mindset. Because I mean, it really is like what, what we're doing was like not even, it wasn't even an idea in someone's head like 100 years ago or 50 years ago. It's funny, I, I'm rereading this book called Sapiens. I don't know if you've ever... No shit. Out. 
Yeah, I uh, yeah, I just almost finished it, and I have uh, Homo Deuce. The yeah next one lined up. Yeah, so I remember. I think it was the be- beginning part of Sapiens where Harari talks about how if you present technology to a species that's advanced enough, it's indistinguishable from magic. So you basically think that you're dealing with witchcraft. So if you brought, you know, this technology back a hundred years, people would think, you know, you were some supernatural being or something. Or if a homo sapien came forward 5,000 years, basically, you know, you wouldn't even be able to process the technology that was going on. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, the, the great philosophers back in the day when they presented something that was so outrageous, like they discovered a new planet or something that was pushing our species forward a step, they would be ridiculed and burned at the stake. Yeah, like Galileo, when he suggested that the Earth was not the center of the universe. And then the church basically led this huge, you know, mass exodus of his beliefs and tried to discredit him, possibly tried to kill him. I'm not sure. I'm not positive on that, but I, I know that they tried to discredit him and a lot of other people that were saying things like that. Sounds very much like nothing's changed. Yeah, basically. Pe- people were ahead of their time with the cancel culture. But people do the same thing now. I mean, it's all politically charged. Like, I mean, like if what you say is proving something that disagrees with whoever said that it was this way, and you're going to mm. prove them wrong and make them look bad and like ruin the confidence that people have in that person's abilities, then they're going to try to shut you down regardless of whether you're right or wrong. It's hard to stay open to being wrong. Like I fucking hate being wrong. <laughs> and I'm not, even, I'm not even some like this massive political figure or anything like that. But yeah. even just on a day-to-day basis... If, you know, I'm getting in arguments with my brother, something, someone points something out to me that's wrong. I always have this initial reaction that's kind of like, fuck off. Like, I know I'm right. But then if I actually sit down and think about it, maybe I'm not totally wrong. But there are things there that are wrong that I should reevaluate. Or I just got the, the whole thing fucked up. And I'm like, wow, I actually, you know, that was good that that person pointed it out. But it's a, it's a constant struggle for me to to stay open to that because it's like not human instinct. You're not alone in that. It's a constant, I mean, everybody struggles to be wrong. And, you know, you meet those people all the time that still haven't been, haven't figured out how to be wrong and they just can't be wrong. I'm wrong all the time. And I learned recently after I went through some like semi-traumatic situation in my love life that when I, if I'm open to being flawed, then I'm open to to fixing myself and progressing forward, which I like more than the pride associated with being correct. What was it that made you realize that? Well, I went through a a relationship that just like um, completely fell apart, you know, as they do, and lost myself trying to fix this scenario. And eventually had to end up going through therapy, which I was one of those per- people that had always viewed, always viewed therapy as a sign of weakness, reaching out for help. And it wasn't until I went through it that I realized like, I should have done that way sooner. You know, it was just like mm-hmm. the best thing 
that I could have done for myself because it opened up my mind, allowed me to like analyze my own thoughts and figure out what's right and wrong. And I started getting into all sorts of sorts of other things associated with like the human mind and philosophies, you know, like um, opening up to myself and being okay with just whoever I was and, and one of those things being right or wrong, like, Oh, I'm wrong. Okay. Well then tell me how I can be correct. And now I'm better because you helped me. So thank you. People don't want to feel like they need help, but they do. Everyone needs help. It seems like traumatic experiences, like ending a relationship, which if you're in the throes of that, it's very devastating. And I actually went to therapy once a few years ago when I was kind of in a relationship that was on the way out. And I want to go to therapy again in the future. I just haven't made it a part of my schedule, but I just realized how much shit I wasn't talking about, or I I thought that just reading about it or having conversations in my head was the same thing. Like trying to self-rationalize it was the same thing as going to therapy. Because I I thought the same way. I was like, who the fuck needs to go sit down with a person? Doesn't that mean that something's wrong with you in some way? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't you be able to figure that out yourself? And I have people in my life that are very close to me that I considered some of the strongest people in my life that regularly go to therapy and sit across from a therapist on a weekly or monthly basis, even if there's nothing that's going on in their life that's particularly traumatic at the time. It's just it's just become a part of their routine. So having people that I look up to that also go to therapy has definitely opened my mind on that. Oh, for sure. I'm really glad that you see things like that. There is... <laughs> I know a therapist that goes to therapy. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's like the like doctors that go to doctors. You can't you can't uh, treat yourself. I'm I'm sure that's <laughs> that sounds like it could be somewhat of a challenging encounter for a therapist because if you're the therapist that's providing the therapy, you know that the other therapist is talking about their problems, but also like doing their therapist thing at the same time. They're like <laughs> hyper analyzing it. So you're like, am I doing a good job right now? Am I not? Does this dude think I'm a quack? Like, oh wow. But yeah, I, I I totally I totally get that. Everyone everyone needs something, even if you are the the therapist. Yeah, the guy that I know, he does a different type of therapy than sitting down, sitting like on a couch and talking to somebody. He goes to these group therapies where someone will bring up a an issue and then they all sort of talk about it and he may or may not be the only therapist in the room, but the idea is that like you kind of just bounce the ideas around and they can, you get different spins on something and different takes. And like a lot of time when I'm wrong about one particular thing, the thing that was correct was in nowhere close to what I was thinking. It was like, I would have never thought of it on my own. And that's why you need other people you know, because everybody thinks differently. Mm-hmm. So where you would be correct, you're, it, it's the same scenario reversed on that other person now. Yeah, I've had, I've had so many times where I'm just so into something or I'm so zoomed in on whether it's podcasting or, you know, going through a breakup, something where it's just I'm the one who has the firsthand experience and then someone else that has more of that bird's eye view will come in and, and say, you know, maybe you should look in this direction or you're really fucking this up right now. But I'm, but I'm so deep into it that I don't even realize 
what they're saying. And, and I see this too a lot with relationships also. I, I've been in one relationship that I mentioned before, but for 90% of my life, I'm 26 years old, I've been single. So I've, I've seen a lot of relationships. It doesn't matter how good your intentions are when you're trying to tell your boy like, you know, hey, you know, maybe th- what this girl did is super fucked up and like, you're just not able to see it right now. Or, or from the other perspective, like, hey, maybe this guy is, is not as good as you think he is. Or like, from my perspective, this is what it looks like. Like, it's so hard to see that when you're the one that's in the middle of the relationship. Oh, yeah. Well, there's so many mind games, especially it becomes dangerous, especially in situations where there's like domestic violence involved, where a lot of times the woman will say, oh, I deserved it. Mm -hmm. Like he only hit me because I I really deserved it. Like they're so mentally battered and bruised. Most likely they're like an empath and their abuser is like a severe narcissist that has them completely Mm -hmm. trapped, you know. For example, I didn't even know what that was until I got out of my relationship and I started studying these tendencies. And for those of your viewers that don't know what a narcissist and an empath is, it's super important to study those things and understand the different types of people that have those traits because um, they can be super dangerous to your mental health. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with behavioral issues I'm talking about? Yeah, you mentioned narcissistic, narcissism. Mm -hmm. I know what narcissism is, but I, I'm not familiar with the specifics of like how those personalities interact. I haven't really studied them in detail. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm not an expert, but I can break it down a little bit for you. Yeah. I would love to learn that. So the basics of it is the empath is sort of like the passive victim of the narcissist. The narcissist is the aggressor. And there's many different traits to a narcissist, but what they're, they sort of feed off of is the energy of the empath. And the narcissist is completely self-involved, uh, only thinks about themselves, and they don't even know that they're doing it most of the time. A narcissist will run off their ego a lot of times. So it'll, it'll, they can't be wrong, for instance. So because it'll strike their ego and they can't afford to have that. It hurts Mm. too much. So if an empath questions the narcissist, the narcissist can very easily spin the situation to where the empath is the one at fault. For instance, the domestic Mm. violence we were just talking about. If the empath is struck by the narcissist, the narcissist will then say, will then make the empath believe that it was their fault that they got hit. Yeah, so they're like brainwashing them in a sense. Yeah, yeah. And they their their strongest tactic is gaslighting. Real fucked up in a relationship is, you know, where you want to trust the person, you know, like an insult coming from your loved one is so damaging to your mental health, especially because, you know, at times you feel like you're showing them your underbelly and they're just like mm-hmm. kicking it. So a gaslighting would be basically deflating the person's sense of confidence until they become insecure about their point enough where you win the argument. Hey guys, I wanted to interrupt this episode real quick to let you guys know that you can now support Augsworo with a donation on Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. 
We're a completely independent platform with no outside sponsors or investors. And we're grateful for any amount, no matter how small, to help push the conversation forward. If you'd like to support, you can visit patreon.com forward slash Augzoro. The link is in the podcast description as well. On Patreon, you get early access to episodes, discounts on merchandise, and other Patreon-exclusive content. Also, you can go check out our merch at augzoro.com forward slash store. We have tees and hoodies for sale, so you can listen to the show in style. Now back to the episode. Yeah, it's like you're making them question their own sanity. Like, Yeah. Like that, like going crazy in a sense like i thought i was right but am i really is is that mm-hmm. what it is kind of like making yeah. them question the basis yeah yeah uh <laughs> sit on um do you watch rick and morty no i don't oh man you <laughs> best show of all time hands down i need to because someone asked me that question about every two weeks and <laughs> so and, so uh, there's and they're this always one- like oh fuck like you don't watch, uh, but yeah. <laughs> okay. There's this one scene. The humor is so intelligent and so dark. It has so many different levels. Uh, you can watch it over and over and over again. You, you find out different things. And there's this one scene where uh, there's two news anchors arguing. And um, the female anchor accuses the, the male anchor of gaslighting him. And he says, gaslighting is made up because you're fucking crazy. It was like, you made that up because you're fucking crazy. And that it was so, it's so perfect. It sums yeah. up gaslighting in like five words, you yeah. know, however, however they put it. Yeah. Like using the, using the actual definition of it to gaslight someone. That's pretty, that's pretty ingenious writing. Yeah. That's, I mean, there's a reason why that show is so massive, but all of this sort of information never would have come to me if I hadn't gone through such a traumatic situation. And it was, you know, it was a, it was a year relationship. I was pretty heavily involved in it, but no regrets because some of the most traumatic situations can lead to some of the most like glorious results. You know, I, I ended up learning so much about myself. I, I discovered how to break down scenarios, you know, and even to like, uh, I would have these panic attacks. So I started reading books about meditation and how to accept the panic attack and just sort of like step back in your mind and watch yourself having the panic attack and just being like, okay with it. And when you're not in the middle of the panic and you kind of like give yourself like an outsider's perspective of it, you watch your heart rate go up, you watch all these crazy thoughts go through your brain. And then all of a sudden it's done its thing and it's moved past versus where if you're in it, it spools up and goes faster and faster and faster and mm-hmm. it just never stops. And next thing you know, you're popping a Xanax and going to sleep. I think we might have went through the same breakup because I literally... <laughs> same woman? Yeah, same, same, we were dating the same woman. That that was the reason for the breakup. We we got together on a podcast and found out we were dating the same girl. <laughs> oh my God. That was, just that going over, bro. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we uh, we joined the podcast. We invite her in. I link to it and I don't tell her you're on it. And, and then we gaslight her. Wow. <laughs> oh, shit. It's like Jerry Springer. Yeah, the podcast. exactly. I had a similar experience where I was I was going through a breakup and I actually went to the hospital for what I thought was dying and I was having a panic attack. I legit, I was in a Starbucks and just felt this sensation of walls actually closing in. Like I've heard people talk about it, but I've never actually experienced it until it happened. And then 
I thought my heart was going to explode in my chest. And I remember I called my mom and I just said, Hey, I need you to pick me up. I think I'm dying. And she's just like, uh, okay. <laughs> and then she brought me to the hospital. And basically, long story short, that was my first experience with a full blown panic attack, which led me to exploring meditation. I read this book called The Dare Approach to Anxiety, which is basically kind of like what you were saying, like accepting the anxiety instead of blocking it out in your head. DARE stands for diffuse, allow, run toward, and engage. So it's almost like when it happens, one of the things that you're supposed to do is if you feel your heart beating faster, and this could be for however you experience anxiety, like maybe some people get nauseous or whatever. For me, like a lot of it is my heartbeat and my throat closing up. So it's like you observe it and then you basically ask your heart to beat faster and your throat to close up more. And you basically prove to yourself that like, like you're never going to get to the point where you're actually going to cause harm to yourself. Like it's, it's in your head. Your heart is beating 65 beats a minute, even though it feels like 200, like your throat is perfectly fine. And this happened as a result of a breakup, like that pain and traumatic experience basically caused me to reevaluate the attention that I was paying to myself instead of just forcing everything down. I was like, I need to, you know, I have to to actually deal with the shit so I don't keep going to the hospital, (laughs) basically. Yeah. Yeah. And if you take, if you, if you just go to drugs, you learn nothing and it only makes it worse. It's like a, it's like a really bad bandaid. It's like putting a bandaid on it that infects it. Yeah. Yeah. I had, uh, I had the option to go on Xanax just like as a, as needed basis. But then I also discovered that I, I just have an overall anxiety to taking medication, which I didn't know I have. So like taking the Xanax would make me more anxious, which wow. it didn't like it. It was working on my body, but just taking it made me anxious, like putting that into my body. So it was like counteracting the effects. But yeah, I'm glad that I was exploring other things like meditation and getting the proper sleep, making sure I'm going outside every day, not, you know, just like locking myself in and doing work. I was also uh, still in school at the time too. So it was easy for me to just go from class to class and then just stay inside the rest of the time. Yeah. I mean, I, I see it as sort of like um, when you're in a relationship, you give so much of yourself to somebody that you become synced together. And there's a part of you that's in them and there's a part of them that's in you. And then when you break, you have this now this void. And the beauty of that is you get to fill that void with whatever you want. Mm-hmm. You just have to go forth and do it. It's kind of a blessing in a sense, you know. Yeah. And it made me that experience having that void and trying to fill it. It made me reframe the way that I thought about what I want out of a relationship. And my last, my last relationship was looking back on it was too codependent. Like if the relationship was going well, I was feeling well. And so is she. And if things were out of sync, then we would both carry that into our normal lives where now that I've kind of had some distance from it and doing, I'm, I'm working full time and creating podcasts as well and kind of like taking more control of my own life. I've just shifted my perspective to where I just want to create a life of stability and do cool shit 
for myself, like basically, basically create the life that I want to live. And then someone else can be a part of that. We could support each other. They're not going to be my whole life, but they can be a big part of my life. It's not, it's going to be more of like an interdependency instead of a codependency, hopefully in the future. Oh yeah, totally. Well, yeah, that's the idea. But until you go through a couple of those things and you get your heart ripped out, you don't really know what it is. I was kind of in the same thing as sort of a codependent thing. But also I was living within my ego and I had no idea that that's what I was actually doing. Like, I, you know, I was moving from New York to LA. I was like, gosh, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to go out there. And I'm going to, I'm going to do studio work and I'm going to make a great record with my band. And then I'm going to, I'm going to drive like a vintage sports car and date a supermodel. And I did all those things. And then turns out that I was dating the wrong person. We were terrible for each other. And the old vintage sports car, as beautiful as it is, Mm -hmm. is a fucking nightmare. It fucking breaks down all the time. Mm -hmm. Like I just got it out of the shop and it broke again. You know? So it's like, you get this sort of idea of what your life should be based on whatever data you've consumed, either be like a magazine or your favorite celebrity. It could be so many variables. But you develop this who you want to be based on what you've seen and what looks good to you. And it takes sort of a traumatic shock to your system to sort of wake the fuck up. And be like, oh, this is, this is what I actually want. Like you were saying, oh, now you're looking for what you want out of a relationship versus what you thought you wanted. Is it hard to escape that mentality out in LA? Oh, yeah. Everybody lives in their ego in general until they they find something. But this place definitely feels it. I mean, this is like the home of the Instagram model. This is the home of many people that market how awesome their life is to people and make a living off of it. Like, I'm included in that, although I don't really do a ton of social media. You know, this is just the industry that I'm in. You find a lot of people living in that. People complaining about something so small because they're so caught up in their ego that they don't realize that they have so much awesome stuff going on in their life, but they didn't get the right cream cheese on their bagel. And they're just like pissed about it. Hey guys, this is a reminder that you can now follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Auxoro. If you're on Instagram, it's at Auxoro. Twitter and Facebook is at Auxoro Mag. You can search Auxoro on all three and we will pop up. We post behind the scenes content and clips that you will not get anywhere else if you don't follow us on social media. And it also helps get the word out when you tag us, tag the episodes, and let other people know that you're listening to Auxoro. Now, back to the episode. And you're right. Social media, I think, definitely has a lot to do with it. And as I use social media more and more, I realize how much of a weird beast it is because you know, it's a great tool to get out there and, and get the information out there, get to your followers, basically allow people to have this look into a little slice of your life. And you can determine how you want to people see that, take control of your own Instagram and Facebook, whatever you're on. But at the same time, it's hard not to look at someone else's social media and think that everything that they're posting is just what their life is like 100% of the time and kind of get like 
consumed in it. So now I'm at the point where I just, I like posting and then I don't really like being on it. Maybe I'll check it towards the end of the day, but I, I feel much better when I'm, I'm posting and kind of just like getting content out there. And then other than that, just focusing on what's in front of me. I don't know if you've had a similar experience or how have you kind of handled the, the social media landscape? That's a good question because I'm in a situation where I really do need to be proactive on social media. But I'm also a generation that didn't grow up on it. So it, as much good as it does, it does present another slew of issues. Like everything good has something bad that comes along with it. So I have my ups and downs. Sometimes I'm feeling great and I just post, I put out content and I don't really care what it is. I just, oh, that looks cool. And I put it out and it does great. But then there's other times where I don't post anything for months. I just go through and I find myself looking, looking at other people's lives. And I've got a great life. I've, I love what I do. I love the people that are in my life. I, I'm very happy. But I find myself looking at other people's lives and going, fuck, like that's way cooler than mine. Or I wish I had that. And then it stops me from putting content out there. And part of it's fearing that I'm doing that for somebody else that I'm like, you know, I'll put up a picture of like me doing something that I'm really stoked about that I want everybody to see. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, is that going to inhibit them? But sort of their problem. Mm-hmm. I think in a, it, social media is so new. I was thinking about social media when, I, when you mentioned Sapiens. Is that book, I don't know if it fucked you up, but it fucked me up. It, like, it may be hard to like almost function in society because it broke down everything. And we were talking about Galileo Mm -hmm. and how new inventions are kind of like, takes a while to soak in, you know? Yeah. Social media is so new that you have the generations that predate it and the generations that are growing up on it. And it's never going to go anywhere. But it's like when Galileo said this and then the church came down after him or whatever it was, it, it was... It's sort of the same thing. It's just going to take a, it takes a minute for everyone to adjust. You know, it's bringing on this new set of problems that, that weren't there before. And everyone's, everyone's only focusing on that. But there's so much good that it also brings. You know, it's getting people out of the house. They're like going on hikes to go take a selfie in some canyon somewhere. Well, that necessarily wouldn't have existed before. You know, the microdata dictates that they, People are getting off their ass and doing stuff. Anything for the gram, you know, that's people going out there and doing something because they want to get... Yellow bitches. Yeah. People are, are, are literally more active than they ever have been. Um, they're more connected. You know, I can literally talk to my fans at any minute. I can pick up a phone and talk to someone in Japan that sends me a message. I mean, the ability to do that is just... People have wanted that for so many years and they, now they have it, but it's bringing all these other issues and they're focusing on that. Yeah. And to answer your question before about Sapiens, yeah, it definitely did fuck me up. And it also gave me a, a, a hopeful... There was a lot of hope in the book too, I thought. And you know, clearly I had to think about it because I'm, I'm rereading it again just because I realized how much shit that I missed the first time and I just wanted to go back. But yeah, a lot of the, the the innate characteristics about mankind and and 
you know, how suicidal Homo sapiens were at the beginning. But then also coupled with the fact that for hundreds of years, mankind thought that they were living in the golden age and that things would not get better. And that they, they were actually getting worse. Like the best had already happened. And I think today we've, we've always lived in a time where people preach, you know, your life can get better. You can kind of take self-control of your life and the belief in the power of the individual. Whereas, you know, three, 400 years ago, there was really no individual. It was, you know, you're doing everything for the benefit of your, your family, your, your, your town, your, your close group of people. And, and those things have give and takes. You can take the individual, individualism to the extreme. You can take the, the more uh, generalized approach to the extreme. You were sort of like a, a pawn in the more powerful person's wheel. or You know what I'm saying? Like it was like a, you hold the fields and you took care of the livestock or whatever uh, so that the rich man could get richer. And all, the only thing you did was work to feed them and to procreate so that like your spawn will continue to feed them. Yeah. And a lot of that was decided at birth. So it's like this, this is your class and you can do your duty to fulfill your class, but anything outside that don't even waste your time with it. Oh God. Yeah. The caste system. Mm, Like that doesn't, there's like similarities in today's world, but it doesn't really exist. Definitely not in the same vein as it was before. And thank God for that. You know, that's like, it's actually now like more mainstream than ever where rags to riches is like the most popular story in the world. Like Cardi B was a stripper living in the hood and now she's a, you know, platinum global star. Exactly. Yeah. And you can be too. It's kind of a shift from the mentality that you have to work for the same company from the time you're 20 years old and then you basically have to rely on getting promoted and you make more and more money and then eventually you retire and then the generation you die yeah you retire and you die you retire for five years and then you just fucking passed away with, <laughs> with all your money that you never spent yeah and then today you have you know 20 25 year olds that are making hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars basically just creating jobs for themselves on the internet and social media and it's kind of flipping that whole premise on its head like you you can create a job for yourself if you're willing to be consistent and go through a time where no one's going to give a shit about you for maybe five, six, ten years. But if you're willing to to do that, you can make a path for yourself and, and you don't have to wait for someone to tap you on the shoulder and be and be like, all right, like you can move up now. Like you can just kind of take control of that. Wow, yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I'm sure it's fucking with the older generation for sure. I mean, it's like exponential how fast we're moving and it's only going to get worse. But I couldn't imagine like it. Things changed so drastically from generation to generation from like, you know, in like the baby boomer, boomer kind of section of humanity. But uh, imagine how it's moving now. I mean, like we, we're, there's people that are still alive that had that sort of mentality that were, they saw them, you know, the first man land on the moon when they were a kid or something like that. And there's, or they, or they saw like uh, they were around during the great depression. And now there's, you can alter a person's eye color before they're born and you can grow like ears and, and meat and Petri dishes. Like 
just insane shit, like self-driving cars. And, and the, the same person uh, that's seeing the self-driving car used to have to like crank their Model T over to start in the morning when they were a kid. You know, mm-hmm. the, like the gap is getting further and further because you're moving faster and faster. Now kids are creating their own jobs online. Whereas before you had to wait until someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, good job, you can now move up and pay. You had zero control of your life and you sort of just had to be okay with that. Yeah, I was going to say, now, now you can go uh, zero to 60 in two seconds in a Tesla instead of cranking up that, that Model T Ford. Yep. And our kids are probably going to ask us, how did you ever drive a car? Like you used to have to do it yourself instead of just getting in the passenger seat and having it drive you all over. And mm-hmm. you could probably like you can in self-driving cars, just fall asleep or, you know, go, go wherever, drink in the car. <laughs> like who cares? Right. You're, you're not driving. So who yeah. gives a fuck? And then kids in the future are going to be like, you used to drive fucking cars. Like Jesus Christ, old man. Yeah. You ever seen uh, you ever seen a millennial try to use a rotary phone or anything like that? It's, I mean, I've tried to use the rotary. I still don't know how to use a rotary phone. <laughs> I've, yeah. I've I faked it for pictures, but I've never actually <laughs> used it. <laughs> Can you start a carbureted engine? No. Yeah. It, you don't have to. It doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If you're a fan of that sort of thing, then like, you know, like I, I know how to do it because I have one. But if you don't, like, you know what's really easy? Getting in your car and hitting the start button. You didn't mm-hmm. even have to unlock it because as soon as you got close, the car unlocked. Yeah, and it warms up for you. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy to think about all the things that we just do on autopilot and how we've basically maneuvered technology to to cover all the things that we don't want to learn. Going back to sapiens, go, doing hunting and gathering and even things like navigation. If If I didn't have Google Maps or the transit app in New York City, I would have to actually learn where everything was in the city like people had to do before the iPhone. I, I, like, I would be clueless for the first three months probably if I had to learn how to actually walk around. And then that was just normal to people. Like, that, that was just something that you had to learn. You had to learn how to go places by memory and actually pay attention to what you're passing, what you walk. And if uh, like all this technology went away tomorrow we'd be kind of fucked <laughs> it's crazy crazy to think about like a cabbie in london has to take a ridiculous test they have to know every street if you've ever have been to london have you ever been to england i've been but about 12 or 13 years ago so i i i wasn't really experiencing the the full extent of london okay when you get in one of those london cabs it's truly impressive where uh, especially coming from an uber generation where i get in the car and the guy knows where he's going because there's a screen that tells him where to go and as he's driving there as he's telling you about his real job Mm -hmm. and the in london cabs you just tell them the hotel you're at or like the, the address to the restaurant that you're going to and they think about it for a second they go ah okay and they got it and they 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 literally don't use anything to get there. They just go. Yeah. And they're like thinking about the the time of day and if there's traffic on a certain route and they can kind of plan it out in their head. Yeah. They're really good at their job. And it, people put less and less, less and less effort into that sort of thing these days. And it just, you know, people will always gravitate towards the easier 
smoother option because as life gets more complicated, anything you can do to sort of like take that strain and pressure off, you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I'll look at the, the, uh, the Metro app on my phone. I'll look at the Metro app on my phone to, to figure out which lines I need to go to. And I'll do that standing right in front of a giant map down on the subway. And I, last time I was there, I was noticing how few people stopped to look at that map. When I moved to New York about eight years ago, I would have to, I would be standing on, at that map looking at it, usually with a few people. And we're all trying to figure out where to go. I'm better about that type of stuff now where I've just taken the subway so many times. I, I'm in uh, Park Slope in Brooklyn. So I'm, I basically take the F everywhere. But when I first moved into Brooklyn, I was checking the transit app on the subway. Like I, I would have, I was already on the train I need to be on and I'd be double checking it just to make sure I didn't get on the wrong train. And like, this is the next stop and be asking people like, this goes to second Ave, right? Like, and, uh, just realizing like how much I was relying on the, just this app, the, the information, which is great because it tells you where to go. But at the same time, it, it definitely has some downside to the point where you just aren't aware of your surroundings, really. Yeah, people don't really talk to each other on the subway. And it, it can be a really dangerous place. I mean, um, I took the G everywhere because I was in, I still live in Bedside. Mm-hmm. When I first got there, I remember, I remember some friends of mine telling me, like, uh, don't sit by the doors certain times of the month of the year. I think it was like November, something like that, October, November, because it was the gang initiation month. And the members of the gangs would have to do something super drastic that put themselves in jeopardy of going to jail to show their dedication to the gang. Mm-hmm. And some of those things would be like, uh, they'd have to slash somebody in the face with a knife. Jesus. And they would do that. They would do that in the safest way possible for them by they would just stand by the door and right before the door is closed, they just lash out, swipe somebody in the face with a knife and then jump out the doors as the doors are closing. And then the train takes off. Mm-hmm. So I didn't sit by doors ever. <laughs> and I certainly didn't take my eyes off of anybody. It took me a long time to finally feel so comfortable in the train that I would use my like iPod. Wow. I'd use my iPod on the train just because I wanted to hear my surroundings. I wanted to be constantly aware. And that's kind of like what you should be doing because... That's how you get, if you're just sitting there with your sunglasses on, sleeping with your music on, like that's how you get pickpocketed. That's how, you know, someone can like steal whatever from you or they can rob you or, or beat you up or harm you or something like that. And I, I'll see people on the train, like in the middle of the night by themselves with their headphones in sleeping. Yeah. It's completely vulnerable. They have no idea. Like the world's a scary place. Should be at least a little bit of alert. Something I wanted to go back to when we were talking about social media the connection has definitely globalized in terms of social media. You can connect with people all over the planet, but in a lot of ways, I think people are some of the most happy, unhappiest they've ever been in certain ways because it, it kind of makes you like death by comparison. And I was, I was reading that you and the band made a record in Bogota, Colombia a few years back. And I wasn't in Colombia, but I was in Cuba uh, which is also a developing country like Colombia is. And it's still, I think it's still considered either an emerging market or a third world country. But, but Cuba is, is similar in that aspect. And one of the things that I noticed going from University of Richmond 
to where a baseball team was traveling down to Cuba to play some games is that it was so poor, but people still seemed really happy. Like they were, everyone was ha- like excited to meet us. And granted, we were Americans coming down at a time where there were not a lot of Americans there. So people just wanted to kind of swarm us everywhere we went. But for you in Colombia, what was that experience like interacting with the locals? Did, did you notice anything in terms of the societal differences from between here and America? What, what kind of stood out to you during that time? Yeah, there's a huge difference. I mean, Colombia is on its way up for sure. Um, they kind of have like a, a monoculture, which is basically this uh, kind of the same thing as the caste system where they have um, like the ghettos and they don't, you, you don't, you just don't go there. They won't allow you in unless you live there. Uh, and it's really hard for them to get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the studio was across the highway from this huge hill. You know, it was sort of like a mountain, but it was just a massive hill. And the entire hill was straight, straight shack ghetto. I mean, just like you've seen pictures of in India or anything like that, you know, just like sheds built on top of sheds, a lot of sheet metal clothes hanging everywhere, um, that sort of thing. And people disappeared in there. So that was, that's like most of the country. And then the areas where we were allowed to go were very city, very metropolitan. We kind of stayed in the nice places, not so much because we were just being bougie, which we kind of were because the, the dollar goes super far. So we were staying in nice places. Yeah. But it was, it was just really dangerous. People didn't really treat us that differently in those areas. I think they were just more like cultured and more like, um, you know, a studious, they were super polite, but they weren't like, they weren't kind of like flocking to us like they would if you went to India or, you know, Cuba or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that was a good time though. That was a, that was an eye opening experience. We had to go everywhere we went with security um, because many kidnappings were a massive thing there. Yeah, like are you traveling with armed guards the whole time? Yeah. So they would kidnap you and they'd hit, hit up your label and be like, we want 40 grand, which is, you know, nothing for the label. Yeah, they're like, are you sure you don't want more? Yeah. But they just, they're called mini kidnappings because they, they're going to give you up. They're not going to hurt you for the most part. And they know that if they ask for a small amount that's for the label, but a lot for them, that the money will just get transferred right there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and they can get off scot-free and they won't like press charges, and which is true. It happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Versus if they were to ask for a couple of million, then like the ransom's so high, like they can't, people can't get the money or, you know, they just send law enforcement after them mm-hmm. or whatever. But they had um, armed guards everywhere. They were very protective of what they had. I mean, the city, I forget the name of the area that we were in, but like the city had been, had come up from so low, like they, they had come up from the, from the ghetto and they, they weren't going to let it go back. There's armed guards on every corner. And these guys, like they had grenades on them. They had like full assault rifles. They looked like they were ready to take a house. You know what I mean? Yeah, they had some heavy duty shit. <laughs> but the people were really, the people were really nice. They were, they were really ashamed of their history. You know, it's funny how like some people can really influence 
the general like concept of a place mm-hmm. when really like the, the people of Colombia are super sweet, super nice people, very happy. Then there's the drug dealers that produce a ton of cocaine and make like world headlines. Yeah, especially to Americans when people think of Colombia, especially, and I, I've never been to Colombia. I plan on going, but there's definitely the the view that it's probably like Pablo Escobar pops to your head. You you think of all mm-hmm. the the cocaine and the drug dealing that goes down, and it's kind of known as this hub for where drugs go everywhere else, basically like shipped out from all these kingpins. And so yeah. it's like easy. I'm sure it's easy to just generalize that, okay, this is, you know, what everyone's in the country like is like when in reality, that's just a few people who are dealing in the drug business when other people are just trying to get by. Totally. Yeah. I mean, everybody that I talked to when I got back was like, oh, like, how was the cocaine? <laughs> yeah. That, that's the first thing I asked my friend when he went there a couple of years ago. I was like, how was the blow? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, didn't even do any. When I was there, uh, I mean, I was there like I was working, but also they sort of make it hard to get in a sense. You got to you got to dig for it. They don't want that to continue. They don't want that to be a big thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it you can get it and I'm sure it's very good, but I didn't actually get any of it. They, um, they kind of keep it off the streets for the most part. I feel like cocaine culture there is still very alive and well, but it's mostly an export. Yeah. I don't think the, I don't think the people are doing a ton of cocaine there. Yeah, my my friend said the same thing. He they actually got their hands on some, but he uh he said they they basically got held up because the the guy made them buy much more than they wanted to. They came in just trying to buy a normal amount for two people and the guy basically said, "No, you're buying this much or you're not leaving." So they they basically made them buy like a brick of cocaine which was not super expensive cuz it was Colombia, but then they're like, what do we do with all this cocaine? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So uh, they basically, and the guy was giving them all these directions because it's not, it was more like this pure paste form. So he's like, all right, you got to microwave it for this long when you do it. And like, don't do lines of it and like only do a little bit because it's much stronger than what you guys are used to. So he said it was, he said it was weird because they basically got held up. But then the guy all of a sudden was like, all right, now like, I'm going to give you all this useful information and like make sure you guys don't kill yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's actually, that's kind of brilliant because like that he probably, he's probably like a nice guy that's just doing what he has to do to survive mm-hmm. and support his family, but he doesn't want to kill anybody. But like he's, he's, you know, if it's him or you, it's going to be him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's true survival right there. Like, nobody wants to really hurt anybody unless you're a fucking psycho and that exists. But I think it's totally natural to choose yourself over someone else. I mean, that's just survival and like, you got to respect that hustle. If there's one thing that all good drug dealers have in common, it's that they hustle their asses off. There's one guy I follow on Twitter, this, this, this dude, Ed Lattimore, who basically built his own online business. He, he actually came on the podcast a few months back. But he talks about the the crackhead hustle mentality because he grew up in the ghetto. And he said like the one thing that crackheads were always doing was trying to scheme how to get their next hit of crack or crack dealers are always trying to scheme like how to get the next sale. So it's like this. (laughs) 
his argument was that drug dealing is like the most pure form of entrepreneurship because, <laughs> because all you're worried about is like getting that next sale. It was one thing in, in Sapiens that, that I, I loved so much be, um, that relates to, to that is that that mentality never existed until the agricultural revolution. Yeah. I mean, until we started farming, it didn't, there was no need to look into the future because we, we didn't have plants that needed sun and water and like, had, you know, you had to make sure if it was going to rain a lot, you had to like direct the, the rainfall. And that's like what, like our farming ability is what created a multitude of people to the point where mm-hmm. we're overpopulating the planet and it also created anxiety. Mm-hmm. Cause like anxiety was originally just for like, Oh fuck, there's going to, I'm going to get eaten. I need to run. Yeah. It was a survival tactic. Yeah. And it led me to, it led me to watch this, this, this is great doc on Netflix called the mind explained. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. I think you'd really dig, man. It's, um, it, it has different segments of it. Uh, one's like sleep, one's dedicated pretty much to anxiety. Then there's like several different factors. One's about like acid and mushrooms and their effects on the brain, uh, which is really interesting. But the one about anxiety, it just covers like, it's just, it just makes so much sense when it gets broken down. Your brain and body have adapted to um, heighten your senses and get your body the most ready it can be to survive. And it's, it's interesting how that happens. The food in your stomach stops digesting. Um, your eyes get, you, you get tunnel vision so that you can, you only stay focused on the predator. Your blood is diverted to your thighs so you can run faster. Your heart starts pumping faster. So there's more blood. Um, you know, you have your, you have a shot of adrenaline, which is basically like steroids. So like all these things happen that was built around surviving an attack because those sorts of things were happening, happening for so, so long. And then society happened so quick that you have that effect now happening when you're late for your, your dinner meeting or something, or something's going wrong at work or your, your friend's not calling you back. It doesn't like you get anxiety over everything. And it's, it's like the most like fight or flight instinctual mode your body can have. It's like one of the most stressful things your body can go through besides like pregnancy. And you get it from basically everything every single day. Yeah. We have all, all, all these, yeah, it is insane. We, we have all these evolutionary survival instincts that come out in the form of anxiety for triggers that no longer exist. So when your heart is racing on the street and there's no tiger there that's trying to maul you, you're just walking down the street and all of a sudden your mind starts racing and something sets it off. It's it's an irrational fear and it makes it worse because you can't pin anything to it. Like if I, if I just ran two miles on the treadmill and my heart's racing, I feel fine. Like I don't feel anxious at all because I know that there's a reason for my heart beating fast. But then when that's happening and, the, and you can't point to any trigger, then it just magnifies it because you're like, well, am I, you know, like what I was thinking, am I, am dying? I dying? Yeah. Like, is this it? Like, is this what it feels like when you die? Like your heart just explodes in your chest? Like what, like what is going on? And, and, and like all these, 
all these ways that the, our body has evolved that were great things back in the day. And, and a lot of them still are. But some of them are just kind of like misfirings that come out as anxiety because we don't have those triggers that existed thousands of years ago where, where we're constantly trekking through a world where we're not at the top of the food chain. And now we are. So it's like, what the, like, what the fuck do I do with all this energy, <laughs> basically? I think it's kind of amazing how we, we, we really shouldn't be at the top of the food chain. Like we catapulted ourselves to the top so quickly from so far down below that we, we're like still babies in it. If you look at it as more of like a zoomed out perspective, like a lion is born with confidence. Like a male lion walks around the way he does because he fucking owns everything. Like nobody fucks with him. And then people come out and we're just like full of problems, suicide. I mean, like mental health disorders left and right. The only other species that comes anywhere close to how fucked up we are is like dolphins. And they're, as far as I know, and they're like one of the only species that uses uh, more brain than we do. And I think dolphins are actually smarter than us, but there's a good chance. I've, I hear so many things about dolphins and the way that they communicate with each other. Like, who the fuck knows if maybe if we didn't evolve to become these intelligent homo sapiens and have a form of consciousness that other species see. Like, it, like I don't think any other species, maybe dolphins, like who, who the fuck knows, but I don't think any other species is aware that they're aware where they have that like inception of consciousness where you can think about your own thoughts. You're not just susceptible to your primal instincts. It's crazy to think about like, what if another species like dolphins evolved to become us, like our level of consciousness and apes and apes just stayed apes. Like they, there was never like an evolution. Like, I, I don't know. It's uh, AI. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, I think that we're creating the next species. In a lot of ways, we're kind of already joined with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we're technically in the cyborg age right now. I mean, the only issue is we have a broadband. We have a, we're inhibited by our broadband, our, our thumbs can't move as fast as our brains. So we, it, but if, if our cell phones were a part of our brains, we would be cyborgs. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure, you know, in the future, when people start to get these intelligence implants or things that are basically enhancing our brain function, where you, you can do Google search in a split second and just have the answer in your brain instead of actually having to log on to Google or, just like maybe contacts that are designed to analyze your surroundings or like you can text people by just thinking something and like sending out a text message. Yeah, yeah. Some Black Mirror shit. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it reminds me of uh, Black Mirror episodes where you, whether it's like an implant in your head or you're walking around and people have real-time social media profiles where you rank everyone after a certain interaction which I don't think is that far-fetched because it kind of already happens. That's the scariest part about Black Mirror is that all of it is pretty realistic. Like it's not so far off that it can't be done. That's why I think it's so good. It's, it's so good because it's so... It, 
it makes you think, but then it's also scary because it's not so drastic to where you can't see it eventually happening. I think if it was too crazy, people wouldn't be as connected to it. But the fact that they're kind of extrapolating things that are already in existence right now and kind of just taking it a few levels further, people can see the the path to where Black Mirror episode will become real life. And props to the writers. Whoever whoever writes that show, I think is fucking genius. Well, yeah, fucking round of applause for them, man, because they, they nailed it. Did you did you also see um, on Netflix, there's, um, it's called Love, Sex, and, and Robots? No, no, I haven't. It's a series of short um, sci-fi. I don't know if you can, you can tell, but I'm, I'm into sci-fi. There, it's a series of short sci-fi films, and they're all completely different. Completely different teams made these. There's one that really like really does it for me. The um, there's a couple that moves into a house and they find this ice box, this old ice box that's in the house, and mm-hmm. in the ice box is a mini civilization. And because the civilization is so small, their time frame moves like you know thousands of years per hour. Mm-hmm. And they, this couple watches this um, civilization go from apes to the future. And I think it's pretty accurate. It made me start thinking like there's, there's really no breaks on humanity. We evolve and we progress as fast as we possibly can. There's never going to be a point where we're like, all right, cool. This is good. This is cool. Okay, I, I can sit here and enjoy this now. We're just not going to do it. And when we reach the maximum capacity, speed capacity that, that we can move, we're going to invent something that can move faster. And that's where AI comes into place. I mean, you've got an electronic processor that with coupled with AI can move already millions and millions of times faster than a, than a human. Just like the synapse mm-hmm. in your brain alone, the synapses fire in your brain at a third of the speed of sound, I think it is. And in an electronic processor, they fire at the speed of light, which is mm-hmm. millions of times faster. And then on top of that, the processing unit can process information a million times faster than the human brain. So you've got millions and millions compounded, compounding on the brain faster than the brain. So once you have an AI system that can do that, I mean, you have AIs already that can invent a language in, in a few seconds and communicate efficiently with another AI. There's like a story that happened in Korea somewhere and, you know, freaked everybody out and they had to shut things down. And the story goes that the, the, the computers like linked together and like started blowing shit up in the lab and start, you know, thought they were under attack. They were military robots. They thought that they were under attack because the scientists were shutting them down. So they started attacking the scientists using the tools at their disposal. And there was like all kinds of like scientific ex- information around them and they immediately analyzed all of it and started using the you know whatever compressor to like you know push back something into something else and blow it up and they were like killing people mm-hmm. so i mean whether that was true or not that was just a story that i that i read on the internet but it's pretty like i could see that happening that sort of thing but then on top of that you've got quantum processing which puts you know that's like a tesla versus a model t and we're right there. And when we, when we finally invent the right elements that come together, it'll just be exponential and move so much faster than we can handle. That's why we're trying to put like the, the God laws into these 
AIs and everything because we're trying to like keep them from why wouldn't they just turn around and and kill us? I mean, like if you step on an ant, you don't feel really anything about it because it doesn't it's an ant, right? But like we are closer in brain power to an ant than we are to an AI. Yeah, that's fucking wild to think about. Yeah. So if we move faster and faster and faster, the fastest we can go is the speed of light. I mean, in theory, eventually we will just reach that. Like we will leave our bodies. We'll we'll just be able to download our personalities into some sort of matrix. And then we're just now in the system. And we've we've we wanted to move so fast that we could our bodies were slowing us down. So we've we just become light. Speaking of the God laws and people trying to put these preventative measures in AI and people coming up with how AI is going to interact with the world, it's it's sometimes it's scary to think about how few people are touching the AI that's going to affect billions of people. So like in a room somewhere in Tesla, there are dozens of engineers that are trying to manipulate the algorithm to how a car is going to drive by itself. And it's going to make decisions like, do I hit the kid or do I hit the old man if like a car swerves oh off the road? Like making totally. making these decisions. But you you have dozens of human brains that are in charge of creating algorithms that are affecting billions of people. Same thing with Google and Facebook, like how people interact with our world on a global scale is created by a small concentration of minds. And it's it's kind of, you know, like depending on the views that these people have, then our world will kind of take on the views of whatever algorithms they decide to put into place because they have to make choices. They're humans making choices about how a program is going to act. Right. And they will shift the tides of change. They will they will be the ones influencing. I mean, like, <laughs> fuck the Instagram models. Like, these people are going to literally influence an entire, what is it, 6 billion people mm-hmm. on the planet or something like that? Yeah. I mean, that's some insane shit. Yeah, like, uh, the Tesla thing really fucks, fucks with me. Like, a human, a human brain, that, that, works, that works based on emotions that are tied deeply into your, into your being from the very beginning. So when you see, if you see, uh, if, you're, if you're gonna hit one of two people, you're either gonna hit the old woman or you're gonna hit a couple of children. Like, which the human brain might, might decide to hit the old woman because you know, she's at the end of her end of her life and the children of the future. So maybe the the person's like, well, fuck it, whatever. I'm not going to kill a kid. Mm-hmm. But the computer might decide there's two of them. Or, you know, and, and then it's going to go for the woman. But what if there's two women, two old women and one kid? Do you know what I mean? So it's like, there was a situation where a Tesla hat ran into something like that and it just didn't, it didn't do anything. It totally fucked the entire system. And the car just shut down and continued rolling forward with the person helplessly inside. And they got into an accident. Jesus. Yeah. So, but how do you create that algorithm? Like, how do, you, how do you let a computer decide who lives and dies 
doesn't that go against the God laws? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough thing because y- you have to make a decision because you don't want to kill all three people involved. So if there's a way that you can maneuver the car to basically end up with the least amount of emotional and physical damage, they're going to have to create algorithms that will just coldly calculate, you know, what is the value of a five-year-old versus uh, an 85-year-old or if there's two five-year-olds or three old women or old men, whoever it happens to be, a decision has to be made and it can't be emotional because it's 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 going to be from an algorithm and it's also going to be a split second thing too even though the algorithm is going to be processing it much faster than we can to us it'll be a split second thing and if if we were the humans if we were driving that car it would also feel like a split second thing because we wouldn't have time to go through that sort of calculation like a like a program would it would just be kind of like we see something oh shit, it's a woman, fuck, I'm going to swerve and maybe you hit the kid or maybe you do the other thing. Yeah, you don't know what you would do in this situation, but I think the main issue here is turning that decision over to a computer. Mm-hmm. We're, we're terrified of like letting that decision be made by not a non-human, which is justifiable, but... Again, like we were mentioning earlier, like we're now we're now splitting hairs over the the small the small items the the line items here. We're in like a self driving car is so much vastly more efficient than humans. I mean, can you imagine like a like a sea of self driving cars on the highway, there'd be zero traffic because they'd all work together. Like if all the cars just moved the same speed because they're all controlled, you wouldn't have traffic. Yeah, me and my brother were talking about that the other day where there's going to become a point where they're just going to make you get off the road if you're a human driver because you're just fucking up the the flow of traffic (laughs) for everyone else. Like you're... yeah. And all these perfect drivers, you're the one that is shit. Yeah, because all the AI cars, they're gonna they're gonna communicate with each other. It's gonna be like this ecosystem of cars that are in constant contact, and they basically know how the entire trip is gonna go because they're in sync with all the other cars around them. They can basically communicate with each other. So if you're a human driving, it's like you're fucking it up, and th- and that's a huge advantage to self driving cars. The fact that there's going to be little to no traffic. The fact that It'll be like you're. There's not going to be any accidents. Not, yeah, and there'll be very few, very few accidents. But then, when an accident does happen and someone dies, it won't be because of human error. It will be because of an algorithm. So that'll that that'll right. be the trade off. There will be so many fewer deaths, but the deaths that do happen will likely be due to some error in the system or malfunction, like something that was out of human control. So it's like. There will be less overall deaths, which is great. Like that, that should just be, yeah. that should just be a given. Like, do you want a hundred fifty people to die a year or thirty thousand people to die a year? Like, obviously, you yeah. think one hundred fifty, but then for those hundred fifty people, it's not going to be their fault. So it's like the trade off of that fucks with you. And there's going to be the people that are going to pick it, and they're they're not going to see the bigger picture. They're going to they're going to be like, well, like 
my son would still be here if that was a human driving the car. And like, yep, I mean, maybe, but like, and it sucks that it was your son and that's like a hard position to be in. But, but if the self-driving cars, if the, if the efficiency of the car make them vastly safer on a grand scale for the human population, that's what's more important. But everybody, including myself, looks through their own eyes and they only see themselves instead of the grand, the grand picture. Like, you know, we're not like a col- we're not like a colony of ants. So there will always be resistance to moving faster. You know, there'll always be pe- people that, w- that will resist that. It's hard to argue too for preventative evidence. Like it's hard to say, you know, like look at all these people that haven't died because it's not a story. It's just, you know, it's an estimation that self-driving cars are going to save X number of people per year. But seeing people die, it's just, it's, it's just an easy thing to grasp onto because you see the, A, the statistics are, are un, uh, undoubtable because it's actually happening. And two, you see the pain. So you can say, you know, look, the, because of self-driving cars, 30,000 people, between like 30 and 40,000 less people died this year, but still 150 people died. It's, it's hard to have people see the people that haven't died because it's like you're arguing for something that was prevented. So there's really no, like there's no blood to point to like in an accident or just something that people can grasp onto. It's, it's, not a, it's not a story. It's not a headline that like, this guy drove to work today and didn't die. You know, it's like, <laughs> like it's, it's great, but it's not, it's not something that attracts attention. Yeah. That's really the currency of, of a modern day world is attention. That's why everybody's on Instagram. But it's also like what we were talking about earlier, how like people resist social media because they don't know, they didn't, they don't know anything about it. People resisted, you know, Plato when he, you know, came up with some ingenious thing or whatever it was, you know, there's always going to be resistance to, pro- to progression. Yeah. I think that's why people are, are going away from mainstream media too. Cause you, you have these people that start YouTube channels that are doing investigative journalism on their own and they do a great job. Guys, like, I don't know if you're familiar with Tim Pool, but he's an investigative journalist that goes all the way around the world tries to stay as unbiased as possible. He's honest about his political affiliations and he's upfront with people. And then at the same time, you have people on Fox News or CNN where their views are steadily declining. So they're trying to grab on to, you know, what's the most decisive, divisive thing that I can put on to get people to tune in. Like how, like we're dying. So how do I get people to watch us more? And it's like, they're eating themselves alive by constantly putting up these clickbait headlines. And then you have people that are creating their own brand that are saying like, look, mainstream media is kind of bullshit. I'm going to be upfront. And then they're pulling in, you know, maybe two or three times more views than CNN gets on a nightly basis on YouTube, which is crazy. Wow. Yeah. The power is put into the people's hands again, finally. Oh, I guess for the first time, I should say. Yeah, there's ne- there's never been anything like that. It's it's kind of crazy to think of the evolution of YouTube where it used to be just cat videos and and, <laughs> and people uh like it still is the some. Yeah, it's still it still is some. <laughs> to me. 
And there's, there's <laughs> always going to be that entertainment value element of it. And I still go on it all the time just to watch videos just for pure entertainment purposes or, or uh, stand-up comedy, music, whatever it is. But then it's also kind of turning into this thing where you can be a journalist and have a job or you can just report on things and kind of like take take the news cycle into your own hands, which I don't think the people who created YouTube ever would have envisioned that it could grow into a replaceable news outlet, like a news media platform. Guaranteed nobody at, at YouTube ever thought that it would be what it is now. Mm-hmm. It's still the largest social media platform in existence. Yeah, people discover... I think it's still number one in music discovery, number one in podcast discovery. And it seems like a lot of people are just tied into to YouTube. Like They'll find it on there and then they'll go listen to the person on Spotify or, or uh, like whatever podcasting app or SoundCloud, whatever. But it's, yeah, you're right. It's, it's still huge in terms of discovery impact. It's our largest, as a band, we've got all, we've got all the different ones. Um, I mean, it's not even the comparison. I think, um, I forget what the numbers are, but like our second biggest one is Facebook. We don't even go on Facebook. Like the only thing Facebook is used for is promotional tools. Like fans will follow the page and they can find tour dates on there or they can find like, you know, where we're going to be for some special event or something like that. And then, but most of the effort goes into like Twitter or Instagram, but mm-hmm. still the largest following that, and we barely even do a lot to it is the, is YouTube. Honestly, like I, I don't go on YouTube every day, but apparently most people do because uh, we, we have like something like 300 400,000 followers on, on YouTube or something like that. And it's like, the, it just has our music videos on there. Yeah, I was going through your music videos the other day and earlier today and everything is in the millions and tens of millions. And it's, uh, it seems like... That's it's fucking a, crazy. Yeah, it is. Like, just like those numbers are crazy. It's hard, it's hard to imagine. I'm sure as a music artist, when you see those types of numbers, uh, is do you feel blunted about it sometimes because you're not you don't see 50 million faces you, you just see a number that keeps ticking up like is do you have to remind yourself sometimes that wow like 20 million people clicked on this and watched this yeah that's that's like all of new england yeah something you know what i mean yeah it's <laughs> like three new york cities like yeah it's fucking crazy watch this one video but I mean, also there's repeat customers. I think some people binge on that. They, they like the video and they'll, they'll play it over and over and over again. But I don't, yeah, I don't really think about it too much, to be honest. I think my personal struggle, a lot of it comes from um, not trying to believe the hype. Do you know what I mean? I don't want my ego to get out of control. So I try to, I try to just like put out the things and do what I love doing, but not try, I try not to like fascinate myself with the numbers and how well I'm doing or like, oh, look at how famous my band is or something like that because then that just inflates what I've, what I've been trying to keep down. Like I try to live as normal of a lifestyle as I can, but also at the same time try to live as abnormal as a lifestyle as I can and ride the balance so I'm still like a person that you could be friends with and not be like so untouchable. Is that tough though? Because... 
music, you still have the business side of music. So you have to worry about numbers in some capacity to where, you know, I, I, I don't know what the exact process is between you and the label over at 300, but I'm sure there's some communication in terms of like goals for streams or views or stuff like that. Is, is it hard to kind of separate yourself and get into the pure creator mode and shut off the business aspect of it? Yeah. So it just has to be blended these days. I was listening to uh, one of your podcasts and I, uh, on the other day I was on a run and, and I, I forgot who you had on. I was like, thanks for listening. It was one of your, yeah, you're welcome, man. Um, I'm terrible with names, but it was one of your, one of your recent artists and he, he was like a, a rapper and he had a podcast of his own. Is it Zuby? That rings a bell. Yeah. And he was, he was the one that actually said, uh, Oh, like you have, you have 6 million views on this, on this thing. That's like an entire city worth of people. That's where I got that from. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I remember we were talking about, um, it, it was actually a singer that I'd interviewed in New Zealand that started that part of the conversation. And I had a converse, I had a conversation with her when she came over here to visit the U S about how she was thinking of giving up on music because because people aren't paying attention. Yeah. She just wasn't able to monetize it and the effort she was putting in, she wasn't sure if she could sustain that for much longer while also doing the job. So she like, she felt like her back was up against the wall, which is a shitty feeling when you have millions of people listening to one of your songs, yet you're, you're kind of like in this mode where you can't really make a living off of it yet. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. It's really hard to make money in music. And that is a, that is a fact. I don't know if it's always been that way, but it definitely is that way these days. And you don't need a label, but if you don't, if you're an artist that can't do business at the same time, you definitely need a label. You need somebody that's going to be able to do all the things that you can't do because it inhibits you from doing your, your having your creative side and being an artist. But also, it leaves you vulnerable. There's uh, because it's such a difficult industry to make uh, money in. There's lots of sharks and vultures. There's, I mean, it's, it's littered with them. And it's people that smile into your face and shake your hand and tell you they love you and call you a brother. And they're the ones that are, that are, you know, going to get you as soon as they can, or they're going to like steal pennies off you until it adds up to a lot of money. It's super common. Pretty much everybody's been fucked over in one way or another. And like, we're no different. Mm -hmm. So in the very beginning, we were told, just focus on the art. We've got you. And Will be you'll be taken care of. Uh, nobody gave us numbers. Nobody wanted to give us numbers. We didn't want to get the numbers. We just wanted to like you know rampage our way around the world and like just live it up. And we fucking did. And we 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 still do. We still have. I still can't believe that this is my job. Like like I get to do what I love doing with my mm. favorite people in the world and travel the world doing it. But we, we didn't have an idea of what the numbers were. You know, we would see here and there these like gross numbers and think to myself, oh, I must be a millionaire by now. And I'd say to my accountant, like, we finished one tour and I said to my accountant, I was like, all right, so I don't know how much I've got, but I don't want to pay rent anymore. It's a waste of money. So I'm going to buy a house in LA. What, you know, how much money do you think I can afford to put down? And what kind of price point should I be looking at? And, 
And I started rattling off these questions and he stops me and he's like, Ryan, like, you don't have any money. Like, (laughs) and I was like, wait, I just toured for like six years. What do you mean you don't have any money? He's like, you don't, you don't have anything. And luckily like some checks came in and I was able to get an apartment, but I didn't have anything to furnish the apartment with. I didn't have, I didn't even have forks. So it was like, holy shit. It's just like a left hook out of nowhere that I did not think was, was going to happen. Was this before you signed the 300? No, no, this was, we, we were this still, is daring. yeah, yeah. And I'm not blaming anybody for stealing our money. We were to, to blame for a lot of the, the misuse of the funds. I mean, because I didn't, I had no idea how much money I was making. I had no idea how to, I didn't know how to save or, or think, okay, I've, I've made this much money and I'm spending this much per month. So this is about like, you know, I didn't have like an idea of think, thinking to myself, like maybe I should pack my lunch instead of buying, going out to eat every day. That Those sorts of things. Like it, I wasn't able to regulate my, my cash. So I yeah, was like, like budgeting stuff. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I would, I would just blow it on all kinds of shit. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be one thing. You know, if you, you spend sometimes a thousand dollars a day for even just a couple of weeks and you don't even think about it because you don't, money isn't a thing for you. You're not going to have any money eventually. You know, just all, it all just goes away. Yeah. I think that's a common thing too. And for people that, for whatever reason, they weren't taught budgeting skills or what. Like I was, I was lucky because my dad basically sat me down when I was a teenager. And him and my mom started a business 30 years ago. So he basically drilled into me like, this is a fidelity account. Like this is compound interest, like all this shit, like put this amount of money in your bank account every single month, like all the paychecks. So I I was extremely lucky that I had that or else I I definitely would have been turning a blind eye to money. But you you see it. And like athletes too, like a, like a kid that's oh 18 God. years old and gets drafted and all of a sudden he gets a $2 million check and he's just spending aimlessly and no one teaches him how to budget or how to spend money. And then you have... And it's become, it's become part of the pop culture now. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, like it's, not, it's not cool. Like it's not cool to save money and to, you know, no one's posting pictures of their... Uh, investment account being like, look, I saved 60 grand last year. Like I'm, oh, I'm cool. like, on my way. Yeah. It's like, right. no, I want to, I want to show that in a car or like, like what you were talking about before when you, you were in LA, like the supermodel, the car, the, just like all the, the external things that kind of show this status. Yeah. That's what you focused on because that's what you focused on. And I've always said like, I'm a big fan of education, self-education. I'm not a fan of curriculum. I think it's, I think the, the education system is so fucking whack. I mean, you don't need algebra. I don't use algebra. Like I, what I really needed was to have to balance a checkbook. I needed to learn how credit cards work. Cause as soon as I got out of school, I got a credit card and I started trashing my, I was like, sweet, you, you're telling me I can buy this Xbox right now and I don't have to pay for it for a year. Fucking what? I don't even know what credit is. I don't need this. And like, I just immediately trashed my credit. I bought cars. I bought all kinds of crap with money I didn't have because I had no one had told me what it was. 
And um, all the stuff that I spent so much energy and effort on in school was a giant waste of time. And that's like years of like crucial years that I'm just wasting. I'm learning like, I'm learning history that's like not even true half the time. I mean, like if, if I had known better, I would have gotten, I would have dropped out of high school, honestly, a long, a long time ago. If I, had really, if I had known what I know now that I didn't actually need it, I would have dropped out and just educated myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. High school is risky for me. I, I would finish high school, but I I think if I wasn't set on the 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 pro baseball career path, like I, I went to college knowing that I wanted to try to become a professional baseball player. And that was kind of my focus that, you know, you go to school for three years, you get drafted, and then you go into the minor leagues. And I got two arm surgeries and just basically sucked as a pitcher after that. And now that I'm looking back on it, I think if I didn't have the the goal of becoming a baseball player, would I have dropped out of college without that to distract me? Like, would I have been sitting in class thinking like, what am I doing here? And th- there's no way for me to go back. And I- I'm grateful for a lot of the things I learned in college. But at the same time, things like you were mentioning, making money or saving money or, you know, how to how to create a job for yourself as an entrepreneur, like things that are more relevant to today's society, you don't really learn that. And yeah. I, I, I just talked to a kid the other day. He's He has millions of dollars in Bitcoin. He dropped out of high school a year early and taught himself how to buy Bitcoin and trade it on YouTube. And <laughs> now he, he lives in the UK and just buys, per, makes all of his purchases in Bitcoin. And it's uh, wow. it's like crazy what you can teach yourself on YouTube, like going to YouTube university, I guess, as people say. Right. Well, nobody the you know, not to get into conspiracy, but the nobody in the, in the highest of the high, they don't want the masses to teach themselves or have the ability to teach themselves because then you can't control them. Like if you give a sheep a mind of its own, it's not going to follow the shepherd. Yeah. People complicate things on purpose too. Like in, in financial planning, there are so many terms and, and unnecessary equations or, or things that the average investor just that just doesn't have to be aware of. But then that is all made complicated to try to scare you into paying someone to do it all for you. Because they can kind of... If you don't know what you're talking about, if no one ever taught you oh, for sure. what compound interest is, you know how to invest in a stock or an ETF, someone starts throwing around all these terms and intimidates you and you're like, fuck. I should probably pay someone to do this for me because I don't know any of the shit that you're saying right now. That's how the business runs. Like it keeps going. Yep. I mean, it's the same thing in like uh, in, in law. I mean, it's like in order to defend yourself, you have to fork over a load of money for someone else to defend you when you, because otherwise you just, you don't stand a chance. You'll get wrecked because you don't understand the way that the laws are written and you have to use the laws in order to defend yourself. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's crazy in these streets. <laughs> Just like all the all the shit that's made over complicated. That it's it's in a lot of people's vested interest to overcomplicate things so that that industry can keep going on the basis of secluding that information from the average person. Yeah, well, that's all about control. I mean, it, I mean, if you like, we could we could go go really deep into into control and like get into religion. You know, that's a whole other that's a whole other thing that 
I highly suggest your readers uh, or listeners uh, read Sapien. Is that, yeah. I mean, that really just breaks it down so perfectly. The, the, um, the common myth, basically, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I've always, I was always never a fan of religion myself. None of it made any sense how you just have to just don't question anything and just have faith that it's correct. Didn't really make sense to me, even as like an eight year old, my parents made me go to church. But now it makes sense. Yeah, that could that could be a, that could be a whole nother uh, two hour conversation. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I I don't want to take up too much more of your time because I just realized we were recording for an hour and a half, <laughs> and uh, that kind of flew by, which is ironic because like the clock is right in front of my face, and don't even realize how much I'm. You're recording half the time. You just look at it and you're like, fuck, that was 45 minutes. Jesus Christ. Hey, man. Um, <laughs> time, time is a man-made construct anyways. Yeah. Something, <laughs> something, something, we, something we could talk about next time. For sure, man. I have so many notes and uh, on stuff that you guys have done with the, the band, like touring and, and naked parties and like all the shit that, that uh, I just had <laughs> down of things to dissect. So I'm sure next time we can get into a whole of the conversation. I'm, I'm happy to do it. But thank you for taking the time to record this. I, I really do appreciate it. And, and I found that that was a really cool conversation. I, I enjoy getting into the nuances of things on longer podcasts that you can't really do in those like more festival style interviews. Oh, God, they're, they're, they're insanely hard for me. I'm more of a long, long-winded explainer. And I sort of have to like talk it out in order for me to explain it myself for myself. And so it's difficult when you have to piece something together in eight to 15 seconds. Some people are really good at it. No, I, I suck at it. I, people, people always say, like when they thank me for doing the podcast or whatever, like I always say, no, thank you. Like I, I'm learning from whichever guest is on my podcast like yourself and I'm it's also forcing me to verbalize my own thoughts to the point where I'm figuring things out in real time that I've never said before so it definitely makes you learn a little bit more of like how things work within your own mind and and whatever topic you're talking about every time I end a podcast I feel like I understand things at least a little bit better yeah yeah you're getting your inner thoughts out and then like breaking them down and putting it back in. It's like <laughs> ideal really. Yeah, but thanks again for hopping on. I'll uh I'll let you go and I'll I'll be in contact with I think it was Liz, your manager from three hundred on the the release date and everything like that. Yeah, for sure, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, thanks, Ryan. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right, buddy. Later. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Augzoro. If you haven't already, please hit us with a five-star rating and comment on Apple Podcasts. This helps us appear higher in searches, which means more people will find out about Augzoro. Other ways to help get the word out is telling a friend, tagging us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, writing a blog post, or supporting us with a donation on Patreon. We are a completely independent platform and we're grateful for every listener who supports this podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride and I'll see you guys next time.